Welcome to episode 39 of the Neural Network. Today, we're venturing into a realm that affects us all, yet often remains unseen, the world of environmental neurotoxins. In this episode, we're honored to have Dr. Pamela Line, a leading expert in neurotoxicology from the University of California, Davis. Dr. Line's groundbreaking work sheds light on how everyday chemicals, from pesticides to industrial compounds, influence our nervous system and overall health. We'll delve into the nuances of our research, understanding how substances like PCBs, which linger in our environment, impact our brain, development, and function. We'll also explore the cutting-edge strategies her lab is developing to counteract these insidious threats, merging science with public health protection. Dr. Lyon's insights promise not just to inform, but to transform our understanding of the delicate interplay between our environment and our health. So whether you're a science enthusiast or just curious about the world around you, join us for this journey into the heart of neurotoxicology, where research meets real life. Yeah, so I, uh, you come very highly uh, um, recommended for for podcast material, and so I was excited when uh, you were agreed to do the podcast. Especially looking through some of your research, it seems that some of our stuff actually kind of aligns up, especially with my own personal research interests. And um, cool. I've always had a kind of a, a appreciation or a fascination with the state dependency of neural networks and how it's really about the state of the network that influences how it reacts to drugs and how it reacts to different environment or even, you know, further environmental factors like the <laughs> secondary drug hit type of thing. And I know that your lab is very much interested in a lot of that and is focused a lot on environmental exposure and uh, in particular PCBs, which I'm going to be honest, I haven't even considered, but I know, uh, you know, going through some of the the health sciences in college, we learned a lot about PCBs. And uh, right. so, so what I was hoping is if you could give us just like, you know, uh, a quick, what it is that is sort of the broad concept overview of what your lab is interested in. And then if we could dive into, you know, the PCBs and try to figure out what it is that they are and how they affect neural function, which is, um, I think, often underappreciated, but can have a huge impact. Sure. So, I, broadly speaking, my lab is very much focused on looking at how chemicals in our environment influence either the way the brain develops, the way the mature brain functions, and or the way the brain ages. So really looking at that interaction between what our bodies bring in from the environment and how it impinges on the brain at various life stages. Yeah. And so so a lot of the you know research I, I saw that you're doing um, was on like I said on PCBs and so that's polychlorinated biphenyl is that right? You got it right Bi- yes. <laughs> so this right. is a class of chemicals. They're actually some of the original forever chemicals. You probably read about oh. forever chemicals in the news now, and that's all in the context of PFOS and PFOAs. But but PCBs are also sort of the first real class that hit our our. Um, consciousness, if you will, as being forever chemicals. And so this is 209 possible versions on a theme, a structural theme. And so basically these are a biphenyl ring, which are basically two rings of six carbons that have been joined together that can have variable uh, numbers and positions of chlorines placed around those rings. And so when you look at all the permutations that are possible, you come up with 209 possible structural variants of PCBs, which I refer to as congeners. Um, 
And this has been part of the reasons they've been difficult and challenging to study because uh, there's 209 of them. (laughs) 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 And we know that the difference in the placement and number of the chlorine around those rings can have an impact on their biological interactions. So how they interact with biological tissues. These are man-made chemicals, um, so they were. We don't find them in nature. Uh, they were synthesized for commercial applications. Um, I actually don't remember the date of the very original synthesis, but they were widely synthesized um, as early as the 1920s and used very heavily. In fact, they're one of the highest production volume chemicals from the 20s through to about the 70s. And so one of the properties that made them so valuable is that they're extremely stable. And they're really good at dissipating heat. Ah. And so they were incorporated into, for example, electrical transformers, which have liquid in them. And they uh, help dissipate the heat that's generated uh, during the transmission of electricity. Um, They were included in uh, fluorescent light ballast for the same reason, to dissipate heat. There was a a widespread incorporation of PCBs into many building materials, uh, concretes, caulkings, paints. Um, They uh, provided flexibility, but also stability. And again, and really, really good at, at dissipating heat, which if you have a building in, in Chicago on a hot summer day that's painted white, there's a lot of heat buildup and that helps to um, make, basically make the paint stable and that keeps the caulking stable, keeps it flexible. And so this is just a few examples of where these things were used, um, but they were used throughout the world. I mean, there were manufacturing plants throughout the world. But then in the 1950s, 1960s, it began to really become apparent that not only are they stable in the commercial applications and manufacturing applications they're being used for, but they're really stable in the environment, too. And so because there was such widespread use of these, um, we now saw PCBs entering the environment. They were disposed of and leached out of landfills. Um, Waste stuff would get into the water, getting into the food supply. And it was very clear. Like I said, they didn't go away. They stayed in the environment for a long time and they trafficked throughout the environment. So we were starting to see pretty high levels of PCBs in places where you wouldn't expect to see them, like the pole, polar caps. You know, we were finding in oh, the wow. polar ice caps tons of PCBs. The other thing that became really scary to environmental health scientists at the time is that these are very lipophilic compounds, meaning they like to accumulate in fat. And because they're very resistant and accumulate in fat, they bioaccumulate up the food chain. So they will enter in at the lower end of the food chain and then just keep magnifying in concentration as you move up to the top predators at the top of the, uh, the food chain, which include humans. And so um, today it's impossible to find somebody who doesn't have PCB body burdens. That means humans. Um, We find it in every species that's been looked at. It's in our food chain. It's in our air. It's in our water. It's in our soils. So it's, they're pretty much everywhere. Wow. So I have no excuse for when I have mind fog sometimes, but (laughs) (laughs) well, luckily, yeah, luckily for us, our bodies have evolved mechanisms to protect us from xenobiotics. It's just when those protective mechanisms get overwhelmed that we start to see um, problems, you know, sort of health problems emerging. Yeah. So you so you mentioned there's like 200 and I just say 290 or 209 variants. 209. 
209 yeah. different variants of the PCBs themselves, which I, I remember when I started as a postdoc, my first project was to test like 50 compounds and their efficacy against fentanyl. And mm-hmm. even, even that I got 10 in and I thought, well, this is a lost cause, you know, let alone, for <laughs> t- let alone 209. But, but not only that, you know, the fact that there's 209 variants themselves, I assume, is there, you know, is is there sort of a variability at which each individual responds to each of those two hundred and nine uh, different? That's a really various. great question. I, we don't have data for all two hundred and nine, actually, yeah. um, and so most of the data that we have to date has really focused on what are referred to as the um, heavy chlorinated PCBs. So again, there's. Uh, eight possible positions where chlorines can be. And so PCBs that have um, more than four chlorines are considered heavy chlorinated. Those with less uh, four or less are considered lighter chlorinated PCBs. And the traditional or historic um, commercial mixtures of PCBs that were synthesized for commercial applications tended to have more of the heavy, heavier chlorinated. So much of the research focused on the heavier chlorinated. We now know today the congener profile is shifting, and that is due in part to the fact that there was a ban on production that was put into place in the late 1970s here in the United States and then adopted by the Stockholm Convention in the early 2000s. So the intentional production of PCBs has decreased almost to nothing. Um, However, today we know now uh, through some really elegant work that was done at the University of Iowa by Carrie Hornbuckle and her colleagues that we have inadvertent production of PCBs, predominantly the lighter chlorinated PCBs in pigment production, um, particularly production of really bright pigments like fluorescent greens and yellows and stuff like that. Um, and so and they're, they're also uh inadvertently produced as part of uh, production of pigmented varnishes, stains, etc. Um, so we see the congener profile shifting. So it's a great question. Does this, does this change the response in the population and does it change how each individual responds to it? And the, the sort of broad answer to both of this is probably yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we also do know that, you know, initially research efforts really focused on a subset of these 209 congeners, which is an, um, about 12 to 16 of them, that were shown to interact with the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which is the receptor that recognizes dioxins. I think most people have heard of dioxins. They're the active ingredient in Agent Orange. Um, and it was well known that the activation of the AH receptor, as it's referred to, uh, can link up very nicely to immune deficits, to cancer, increased risk of cancer, et cetera. And so much of the research initially focused on those dioxins dioxin-like PCBs that bound to the aerohydrocarbon receptor. And for many years, it was thought that the ones who did not bind to the AHR were not toxicologically active. But then pioneering work that was done in the late 1970s by Richard Siegel at the Wadsworth Institute in New York State uh, Department of Public Health, and then also by the US EPA in their neurotoxicology division, discovered that these non-dioxin-like PCBs, at least a subset of them, actually had effects on nerve tissue. So they would change uh, calcium signals, signals, I'm sorry, in neurons. And that's a really important signaling molecule in neurons, both for their development and their function. And it also changed the release of neurotransmitters, specifically uh, dopamine from neuro- neuronal cells. And so that sort of is where about my research came in is trying to figure out what do these molecular changes mean at a cellular and organismal level? Could we actually link those up 
to affects at the cellular and, and, and organismal level. And that's, like I said, where we really kind of entered into the picture of starting to look at PCB neurotoxicity. Yeah. So, so with the PCBs, you said that they're, they're lipophilic and, and they sort of move up the food chain. Do they, you know, we have defenses, some defenses against them, but do they accumulate over time or do we have uh, mechanisms to rid them as well? Yeah, so that's a really great question as well. And we we, we are at the beginning stages of really understanding that. So the heavier chlorinated PCBs are more resistant to metabolism than the lighter chlorinated PCBs. So one of the things that we do appreciate over the last five years is that the lighter chlorinated PCBs don't tend to um, bioaccumulate to the same extent as the heavier chlorinated. So the heavier chlorinated absolutely bioaccumulate in our tissues. And in fact, there have been some um, really interesting studies recently published looking at brain tissues um, from autopsies, postmortem analysis of brain tissues from aged individuals versus de uh, developing individuals and either human tissues. And what they see is the congener profile is very different. In the aged brains, we see a greater percentage of these heavier chlorinated PCBs and very few of the lighter chlorinated PCBs. In the younger brains, we see a shift predominantly towards those lighter chlorinated PCBs and not as many as, as, as of the heavier. So this probably reflects two things. One, the changing profile in the environment, but two, just the fact that with age, we tend to accumulate these heavier chlorinated ones. And so they're going to yeah. be more prevalent in the, in the older tissues. Um, so, yeah, that's there. There is concerns about bioaccumulation. And because these are lipophilic, um, there are also concerns in the context of the developing brain because we know they'll cross the placenta and we know that they also mm. are in breast milk. Um, you know, breast milk has a lot of fatty stuff in it. And yeah. so uh, PCBs will just move into the breast milk. You can't get rid of these things. <laughs> no, they're pretty persistent. That's um, wild. And, yeah, I, I think everyone's shocked when they realize that there's um, probably not a single member of the human global population that doesn't have at least some PCBs on board. Yeah. Oh, no, that's crazy. I was I was going to ask because of the... Um, because of the lipophilicity of the the molecule and sort of the the changes with development versus older, whether or not the it would almost seem that the, it would uh, enhance accumulation with excess myelin that you might see as you age. But yet, it seems that the the developing brains seem to be more vulnerable to the effects of it. So I was curious if that played any role in that. But. Yeah. So you know, I don't know about. Um, the percentage of myelin in your brain in terms of the bioaccumulation of PCPs, that's a really great question. I don't think anyone's actually looked at yeah. that. <laughs> um, certainly, we do see that PCBs accumulate in the more fatty tissues in the body, which, of course, would include the brain. Uh, the highest concentrations are going to be seen in the adipose tissue for sure. Um, but... You know, in the context of why the developing brain is more uh, vulnerable to the neurotoxic effects of PCBs, I think that is an outstanding question in the field and one of the challenges. Um, certainly the data, the animal data and the human data bear that out. And that's not to say that these compounds don't have neurotoxic effects in adults or aged individuals. They do. Um, but it is absolutely the consensus in the field that the developing brain is more vulnerable, um, maybe due to mechanisms that the, the targets, um, molecular targets for these PCBs are expressed more abundantly in the developing brain. 
um, may just be that the processes, cellular processes that they target are really important in sculpting the connections that are made in the developing brain. And the aged brain um, just doesn't have that same level of that sculpting going on. So it might be less vulnerable for that reason. Um and it might be metabolism various. We do know that these uh, compounds are metabolized um, uh, slowly, but they are metabolized. And of course, the goal of metabolism is typically to make a compound more less lipophilic, more hypo, uh, hydrophilic, so it's more readily eliminated in the bile and the urine. Um, and that happens to a different extent in, in adults versus children. But to what degree um, or what is the relative contribution of metabolic differences versus differences in target expression, we really don't know yet. Yeah. So with the, uh, you, you mentioned that the PCBs affected some of the, the calcium signaling. Um, as far as like the actual cellular mechanisms, okay, so the PCB comes in and so now you have sort of these PCBs floating around in these neural spaces and there's obviously receptor targets or there's targets intracellularly as well. What exactly do they do to the neurons, like mechanistic. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the important things to know is that PCBs don't cause overt pathology in the brain um, or in the peripheral nervous system because they do have effects in the peripheral nervous system as well. But um, so, you know, if you were to look at a brain from somebody with a high PCB exposure, it, it on the surface wouldn't look any different from the uh, from the brain of a person who has a low PCB exposure. So it's working to modify um, sort of ongoing cellular processes. It, it doesn't disrupt them totally. It modifies them. And so there are a number of cellular targets and molecular targets that have been identified for, for the non-dioxin-like PCBs. And the most sensitive identified to date is the ryanidine receptor. This is an intracellular receptor. It's expressed on the endoplasmic reticulum, which is an organelle that you find in all cells, um, but you find a very large endoplasmic reticulum in neurons. And it's important to the neuron because this is where intracellular calcium is stored. Um, calcium is a really super important signaling molecule in neurons, and it's really critically important for the function of the neuron to really tightly regulate um, the levels of calcium in the cytoplasm as well as where in the cytoplasm calcium um, changes occur. And so the randonine receptor plays a really important role in that regulation of intracellular calcium levels. It regulates um, when calcium is released from the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, so what we know uh, through some really beautiful work that was done by my colleague Isaac Pesa here at UC Davis is that these non-dioxin-like PCBs bind with very, very uh, high specificity to the ryanidine receptor. And what's interesting is that this interaction stabilizes the receptor in its open configuration. So this is an ion channel. And like all ion channels, it flexes between being open and closed. And the percent of time it spends in either the open or closed state varies upon other signaling going on in the cell at that time. And so what the PCB does comes in and stabilizes it in that open configuration. So the channel's open, which means calcium can leave the endoplasmic reticulum um, to increase levels in the cytoplasm of the cell and activate calcium-dependent signaling pathways. And so one of the contributions that my lab has made to the literature is we have shown that this mechanism, which was identified by my colleague, 
um, leads to the activation of calcium-dependent signaling pathways that normally control uh, the extension of dendrites in the developing neuron. And so dendrites are processes that come out that form connections with upstream cells in the circuit. And the number and branching patterns of dendrites has a huge impact on the formation of neural circuitry, on the flow of information in the brain. And this is one of the primary things that happens during the later stages of development is refinement of these dendritic garbers to form functional circuits. So what happens in neurons that are exposed to PCBs that, that um, sensitize the brand receptor is the terminology we use, uh, that they tend to have larger dendritic garbers. And like anything in biology, there's a there's a set point that's good, <laughs> and, you, and if you shift the system either above or below that set point, you can get into um, functional aberrations. And so we have shown that animals that have these PCB-induced changes in their dendritic arborization also have impaired behavior relative to control animals. So they don't they don't perform as well in cognitive and learning tasks, for example. Uh, I'm a I'm a classically trained physiologist, so set points is a way to my heart. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, what I had a, a somewhat it's it's somewhat of a complex question. So let's let's hope I can explain it well. But uh, for some of for some of my work that I was doing was looking at uh, one of the papers I published was looking at the H current in neurons, and so that's just the the hyperpolarization activated non-selective inward cation current, and you know the the idea of it was that I had in studying uh, with opioids was that you have sort of these latent currents within the network that aren't playing a big role in, as far as breathing wise to to generate a breathing rhythm at rest. Uh, but when a hyperpolarizing stimuli, such as fentanyl, for example, comes in and it hyperpolarizes that network, these currents are activated in order to give somewhat of a, a cellular buffer, if you will. And so you sort of create yeah. this attractor space of network dynamics. Um, and so when you when you're talking about the um, PCBs not exactly being necessarily uh, apparent when you're just looking at a controlled brain per se, like you go and you look at it and you don't necessarily know that they're there until you get sort of a stimulus um, that then sort of exploits the fact that they are there. Um, and, and, and so I was curious as to when you're talking about holding the, the calcium channels open. Um, so let's say, does it then take uh, in order for the dendritic arborization to become more complex due to the PCBs, does it take a certain amount of, uh, I guess this would be like either a, a third type of stimulus or a secondary type of stimulus where, uh, is there something that needs to be like a second hit hypothesis in order to actually trigger the effects from the PCBs themselves, if that makes sense? Those make sense. And no, you don't need a second hit. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we have shown um, uh, in, co in collaboration with another colleague who's now at University of Washington Pullman, Gary Wayman, that um, all you need is a brief exposure to just activate those signaling pathways. And once they're activated, that will result in this um, increased dendritic arborization. Now, of course, in the intact organism, and we're studying this in cell culture because it's easier to manipulate the, the signaling pathways in cell culture than it is in an intact animal. When you looked in the intact brain of an animal that's exposed to PCBs in the maternal diet during gestation and lactation, you also see changes in the dendritic arborization. But this is where your two hypotheses may come in. If we look in animals, um, so we take a litter. 
And some of the animals we put into Morris Water Maze, which is a type of um, learning and behavioral task. And then we have untrained litter mates. And so we looked at their dendritic garbers and compared them in the untrained litter mates versus the trained litter mates. And what we found was absolutely fascinating. So in the untrained litter mates, which would be a closer simulation to our our tissue culture system, we see an increase in dendritic arborization in the animals exposed to PCBs versus those who are not exposed to PCBs. However, in the animals that were trained in the Morris water maze, now we see that the animals that were exposed to PCBs do not show the learning-induced dendritic growth. So there's something known as activity-dependent dendritic growth, which is thought to underlie learning. And so in the animals, the vehicle control animals that go through training, their dendritic um, arbors grow. Um, but in the animals exposed to PCBs, particularly the ones who can't perform the task particularly well, their arbors don't either don't grow or they actually shrink relative to um, baseline. So this is this is sort of your two-hit hypothesis. And we have some we have some hypotheses of why this is happening. It's all goes back to calcium signaling. Because if you look in the literature, um, at what are the effects of calcium signaling on neural activity, on dendritic growth, et cetera, you can see that it's an inverted U um, response, dose response curve. So if your cell, your cytoplasmic levels of calcium are at a lower to mid range prior to a stimulus coming in such that you increase the calcium up to that apex of the inverted U, that results in increased dendritic arborization. But if your cell is already sitting at a pretty high level of calcium and you come in with a second hit that increases it even further, so it's now on the downside of that inverted U dose response curve, now you get dendritic retraction. And it's thought that there's um, different signaling pathways that are triggered by differing levels of intracellular uh, cytoplasmic calcium. And so we think that's what's happening, and we can actually simulate that in culture. So we take cultures and expose them to PCBs only or to a GABA receptor antagonist by cuculin, which basically increases activity in the culture. Both of those alone will increase dendritic growth. But when we combine them, we actually see no increase in dendritic growth. So it's more or less, you know, sort of simulating what we saw in the animals in vivo. That's fascinating. We, we, uh, my first paper that I published as a postdoc was, is again, it was looking at rhythmic neural networks, but it was looking at the the baseline excitability of those networks and uh, looking at the the relationship between stability, um, or you could think of as the probability of having a network in a state that was able to produce breathing. Um, right. And and you looked at it relative to excitability, and we found a a perfect bell shaped curve where if you had not enough excitability, you had no breathing, and then you hit this sort of Goldilocks point where you had perfect amount of stability and relative to the excitation. But then if you kept exciting the network and then it just falls off and you have no rhythm. So you have like a perfect sort of bell-shaped curve. That was that was with potassium, not calcium. But but um I, I was gonna oh. ask was it's and and you sort of uh sort of allude right to where I was gonna go, which was with the you know on face value you might think at first that enhanced dendritic arbors might be beneficial, uh, especially if you're trying to um let's say combat some of the age related reductions in um, dendritic arborization that that could be pathological. Uh, Is there, you know, um, 
a way that these PCBs might actually, you know, uh, obviously they have shown um, pathogenesis within the brain, but harnessing the ability of them to sort of stabilize dendritic arbors under certain conditions. Do you think there might be a chance sometime in the future where you might be able to harness them to prevent sort of age-related degeneration? The concept is fine. The compound is not. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the hard part. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, there's there's the possibility, and I don't know that anybody's actually investigated it, but it can't be discounted, that, yeah. that individuals who have PCBs in their brain as they age, that maybe it delays the onset of some of the, uh, some of the behavioral uh, deficits we associate with the shrinkage of dendritic arbors. In fact, there's a whole new branch of... Um, of pharmacology that's uh, now related to what they call, um, well, so you're using psychedelics. Can I remember what the uh, psychoplastogens? So yeah. these are psychedelics that are thought to be uh, potentially useful in treating depression, addiction disorders, substance abuse disorders by stimulating dendritic arborization because many individuals who have those disorders do have um you know, shrunken dendrites compared to controls. And so, you know, the concept is great. It's just that PCBs are uh, what we refer to as dirty toxins. They have more than one effect. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's kind of hard to to just target them to affect a dendritic arborization because we also know they can promote apoptosis, which if you have somebody who has an aging brain, yeah, you might want to stimulate dendritic growth, but you don't want to stimulate apoptosis uh, and cause neuronal cell death. So um, tricky question, but yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. I think the key thing in this to me is probably one of the reasons why the developing brain is more vulnerable to these PCBs than the mature brain is because the shaping of the dendritic arbor is critical to the formation of neural circuits during development. By the time we are mature, most of sort of the, the major conduits of the circuit are in place in the mature brain. And a lot of the sculpting that goes on that underlies learning and memory is really tiny refinements. So we have a synapse that's stabilized here. We have a synapse that's retracted here. Maybe we have a small little dendritic branch that grows here. But we don't have like these huge huge changes in the dendritic garber that we see in the developing brain. And that's what PCBs are doing. They're really changing sort of that very obvious morphogenic process of extending dendrites from like literally a cell body with fewer no dendrites to this cell with this beautiful ramified dendritic tree. And that's where PCBs are having their effect. Uh. Yeah, because I was, you know, as you're as you're giving sort of the mechanism going through my head is like all of these things that could be useful to hold channels open, you know, <laughs> and I think and like, you know, we, we've it's I mean, PCBs alone are sort of a, a beautiful definition of like the no free lunch type of thing. But, um, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we I was testing for a while trying to, you, you know, using that theory that enhancing excitability can uh, promote, I guess, uh, the ability to create these rhythms within the brain necessary to breathe under the condition of hyperpolarizing stimuli like opioids. And uh, I started using things like tetraethylammonium, and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it worked great to maintain the breathing rhythm. But the problem was, is anytime you administered it, then everything else went into a, a grand mal seizure type of activity. So it's like, did you rescue the opioids? Yes, but you're also in a seizure. So I'm not sure that we really right. won in the end here. Well, you know, actually, um, 
It would be an interesting thing to to try and tease out, although I think epidemiologically this would be incredibly challenging to determine a PCB load. Maybe it would be uh, neuroprotective against, you know, fentanyl uh, induced um, uh, respiratory depression. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's there might be some interaction there. Who knows? Yeah. So, so with that though, um, talking about how, uh, some of these, you know, especially with the PCBs in particular, but how environmental exposure in general sort of changes the, the state of neural networks in order to make them more or less, uh, either vulnerable or resilient to things. I know that you're doing, uh, different types of, or you're, you're, you're studying environmental exposure, um, in general. And I know uh, the term has been thrown around. I just heard it at, at SFN for the first time which was like the exposome i think is what they oh yeah that's a call. huge issue right now in environmental health right and the exposome you know basically is a term meant to include not just exposure to environmental chemicals but lifestyle factors um endogenous uh factors you know, how healthy are you how much sleep do you get um that kind of thing. So it's it's really sort of encompasses everything that impinges on our health. So it's a very complex concept for sure. But chemicals are certainly part of that. <laughs> and this yeah. includes, you know, not just um, environmental contaminants, which is most of what my work is focused on, but also drugs, uh, chemicals in our foods, uh, nutrients, um, uh, metabolites produced by the microbiome, the gut microbiome. These are all part of the exposome. Now, is there is there a way to get um, as, as far as like I'm thinking like a broad scale translatable type of approach that you can because 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 one of the hard parts is that at least that we were having specifically with the fentanyl um, is that how do you how do you determine the basal state of a person prior to giving them the drug in order to actually understand the effects that it might have? Because I think, you know, one of the, the things that it seems like from a lot of your research is trying to like, how can we make some of the unpredictable predictable, which is a good thing to know, especially for how it's going to affect how you're going to do later in life. Or at least it's it's a little bit more, I guess, applicable to mind defining the neural network states. But yours is still it's giving sort of light to all of this underlying environmental exposure variability that's going to affect how you're going to respond yeah. to different things. Is there, is there a way in order to get, um, a, you know, a kind of a, what do you want to say? Like a, an easy way to understand the state of the body prior to, um, let's say a drug exposure, for example. There is no easy way. <laughs> I think that is definitely the, one of the major challenges in the field. Um, we know that any particular disease state you want to look at or any dysfunctional you know, state of operation that you want to focus on, whether it be breathing, whether it be Alzheimer's disease, whether it be autism, any of those, that there are many, 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 many factors that feed into that and that those factors vary wildly from individual to individual. And this definitely is the major challenge in the field. Um, and so trying to do this in in humans has been very challenging and probably the reason why not all epidemiological studies agree. Um, in fact, I'm always amazed if we have a majority of them that do agree. <laughs> That's probably pretty strong evidence for an association. And so, you know, the the only way that we've been able to do this um, Really, I guess there's a couple of ways, but one is to back off and say, we're not going into the human yet. We're going to try and really understand at the mechanistic level how these things are working using experimental models where we can control all these other factors that are going to influence response, genetic factors, nutrition, 
the microbiome and in the individual, et cetera, sleep, all that good stuff. Um, we can't control that in humans. And so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna use a human um mimic, if you will. So we use rodent models and we use cell culture. Um, we are moving more and more into using um IPSC uh, derived neurons that are, are coming out of humans. So human IPSC derived neurons. And so what's really beautiful about that is that you can set up different clones, and within those clones, each of the genetics should be more or less identical. And so that allows you to take the genetics out of the picture in terms of looking at environmental influences. But then if you have clones from many different individuals, you can compare across those to see how much of an effect variability in the genetics is having on the response to the environmental chemical. So that is the approach that, that a lot of people have taken. We're not unique in that. And it's, well, I can't even claim credit for that idea. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of people are using that. And now with today's technology, we have um, improving high throughput put technologies where you can basically screen a bunch of cells in a very reasonable period of time. So in the course of a day, it's not unreasonable to compare iPSC-derived neurons from 50 different individuals of different uh, sexes, et cetera, against a suite of maybe 20 chemicals or more. So, I mean, I think we're getting to the point where the technology is, is there. We could actually do some pretty large-scale screens to really begin to get a handle on this very complex issue. The other challenge then comes into interpreting all the data you get out of these big screens. And this is where machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to be really super important in helping us decipher the patterns coming out of these very complex data sets. Yeah. Is there um, one of the things that, that came to mind is there, um, I was just thinking about the dates. You said when PCBs were sort of largely introduced, uh, not to belabor the PCB point, uh, but it, it's it's fascinating uh, research. But the um, now that there are sort of lineages of individuals where the mothers have been exposed to PCBs and then the infants and then now those infants have now grown up and have had uh, infants has have. I don't know if the studies have been done, but has there been any adaptation that you've seen um, that make them more or less resilient? And the, and the reason that I ask is I always, is, um, I guess from sort of a, a evolutionary perspective, as we are now uh, adapting to the exposure of the PCBs over time, uh, you know, is there an increase or a decrease in the um, effects of them as we've now developed and developing countermeasures is there, you know, it's not, they're not necessarily because they're, they're inorganic, I guess. So it's not necessarily yeah. um, like a viral. Well, they're, organ thing. they're organic. They're, they're carbon organic. They're hydrogen and chloride. Yeah. Right. But, <laughs> but I guess like, as far as like, <laughs> just for like a broader audience that thinks about viruses that mutate when you try to fight them, you know, is there some, is there a super PCB type of molecules that are developing as a result of defending against some of the more common ones? Um, so first of all, I don't think we've had enough generations of humans exposed to PCBs to see any yeah. evolution in the human in the human uh, lineage. Um, certainly, we do have uh, uh, studies of multiple generations of individuals exposed to PCBs that are ongoing. Not many, but there are some, and they're really looking at transgenerational effects, which had been shown in zebrafish, for example, where you can look at multiple generations uh, very readily. Um, so PCBs can change epigenetic marks. These are passed on to the offspring. And so we do see there is sort of a transfer, if you will, of PCB exposure across the generations. Um, this probably is not to the benefit of the 
individual. Uh, so yeah. some of the endpoints that have been looked at are metabolic disorder, obesity, um, immune deficits. And I know there's some work definitely going on with neurological endpoints as well. Um, let's see. So in the context of, of, you know, the PCBs themselves, I mean, they can't mutate because they're not living organisms, but definitely the congener profile has changed over mm. the generations that humans have been exposed. We moved from predominantly the higher chlorinated to more now the lighter chlorinated. The toxicological implications of that are totally not known. Uh, people are just really beginning to look at the, the neurological or neurotoxicity of the lighter chlorinated now. Um, so we just don't have a lot of data yet on these particular congeners. Um, we do know that there's been some evolution in the microbial species that we now are starting to see bugs that can um, better metabolize PCBs. And there has been intentional engineering efforts to create microorganisms that are more effective in uh, metabolizing these compounds and other similar types of, of um, halogenated compounds, which tend to be quite resistant to, to uh, metabolism. So th there are changes that are occurring in our environment in response to the pressure of these PCBs being around. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, I always, I always, uh, you know, just because I was at the, the SFN conference last week and seeing some of the the animal models that have such a quick lifespan, you can see like these huge changes over even yeah. a couple of years and you're like, wow. And then yeah, I started with goats. And so, you know, you get one goat every couple of months. And so, <laughs> and then, so even moving to mice was like incredible at how fast you got new litters and stuff like that. But, uh, by zebra fish and elegans, you'll be amazed. <laughs> I know that's, I wouldn't be able to keep up. I know I'd have to, that's the problem is like, like your organization skills have to go up as your the animals recreate faster. So, okay. So, so I promise I'll, I'll, I'll stop with the PCBs. It's just fascinating things. Uh, but I did want to ask though, um, about the, you know, you have the ongoing work about some of the chemical countermeasure things, which I find absolutely fascinating. And, uh, especially from, like I said, to, like the fact that I study fentanyl and there's a lot of pushes right now to understand sort yes. of these broad scale ways in order to prevent, um, the effects of, uh, you know, there was that theater incident where fentanyl was used to be aerosolized into the air um, that did not work out very well, of course. And um, there's been a push to understand sort of these broad scale, quick response type of uh, countermeasures right. against that. And so what is uh, your lab particularly interested as far as um, understanding countermeasures to environmental exposures? Right. So we are focused, actually, we have a center here um, that's been funded for now 12 years. And we are focused on chemicals, uh, threat agents, chemical threat agents that cause seizures. Um, so this is including the OP nerve agents, organophosphate nerve agents, which I'm sure many people have heard of. They've been in the news, unfortunately, way too much. Um, so Novichucks and, and sarin gas, et cetera, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so we've really been focused on, on the seizure and looking at two specific questions. One is, um, it's now very well established in humans, unfortunately, but also in animal models, that if you don't get anti-seizure medications on board uh, the exposed individual within a few minutes of exposure, that your chances of stopping seizures with the more traditional anti-seizure medications decrease rapidly. Um, and there's some well-understood molecular mechanisms for that because most of the standard of care therapeutics for chemical-induced seizures are benzodiazepines which are targeting the GABA receptors. And GABA receptors, when they're um, stimulated 
overstimulate it, they'll actually internalize. So the the major therapeutic mm-hmm. target is no longer available for the drug to interact with. Um, it's also well known too that even if you are able to stop the acute seizures, um, they they return. So uh, once the drug is worn off, they return or the drug begins to lose efficacy with time. And so there's a real need for a better anti-seizure medication that can stop the acute seizure. So um, we've been working on that in collaboration with Mike Rogowski, who's a, a neurologist, neuropharmacologist here at UC Davis, who has done a lot of work with allopregnanolone, which is a neurosteroid um, and, and produced endogenously, but also produ- uh, produced synthetically as a drug. And it targets GABA receptors that are not at the synapse and therefore are not internalized. And so we seem to have uh-huh. um, better seizure control when we use allopregnanolone in addition to the benzodiazepines, which are the FDA-approved um, standard of care for, for chemical-induced seizures. But our second major question, and this is the focus of the current center, is even if you can stop seizures effectively, when you look at the data for how long it will take for emergency medical technicians to arrive on the scene yeah. in a civilian mass casualty, a lot of these people will have been in having problems, seizing or, or in a cholinergic crisis for minutes to tens of minutes to maybe even hours. And so even if you can stop the seizures at the time the EMTs show up, um, they've had a lot of brain damage that's already occurred. And we know that these individuals will go on to have significant um, adverse neurological morbidity. So this includes developing epilepsy, this is referred to as acquired epilepsy. They can also develop memory impairment, um, slowed reaction times, affective disorders. So their quality of life just basically sucks. And so the goal of the second center, or the center we have right now, our second goal is to determine if we can develop some adjunct therapies that can be added to the anti-seizure medication at a delayed time after the initiation of the seizure activity to mitigate these long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. Um and so we're looking at, at multiple targets. Um, one is neuroinflammation. There is very persistent neuroinflammation in the brains of both humans and animals that have been intoxicated with these compounds. And there's a pretty strong literature linking neuroinflammation to cognitive deficits and to epilepsy in contexts other than chemical-induced seizures. Mm-hmm. So we're looking to see if any of that literature translates to the um, chemical-induced seizure models we have. We're also looking at the blood-brain barrier. Uh, so one thing that we've just recently demonstrated is that acute exposure or acute intoxication with these OPs can cause breakdowns in the blood-brain barrier. And this allows all kinds of stuff to get into the brain parenchyma that should not be there. <laughs> and we know can disrupt neural networks, can which probably underlies the epilepsy and underlies the uh, memory deficits that we see. And so we're looking to see, now that we know that it happens and how long it persists, we're looking at uh, drugs to stabilize the blood-brain barrier. So maybe we can mitigate that effect. <laughs> and then lastly, we're looking at um, actually directly modulating neural circuits using deep brain stimulation to see if that can correct um, uh, some of the issues that we see with abnormal EEGs in individuals that survive um, OP-induced status epilepticus or um, maybe mitigate some of the memory impairments that we see in these individuals. Ah, that's you know it's funny that you mentioned the the time course of uh, response because that's that's actually the reason that I a lot of my research has shifted from central approaches to mitigate fentanyl to 
the peripheral because uh, most of the time, by the time you get to the response, you need to have something on board. You know, if they're not breathing, you have a minute max, maybe two before you have, you yeah. know, starting to get brain yeah. damage. And so a lot of the central rhythm generating modulators that we were looking at, the time course was just too slow. And it's, so it's yeah. like, hey, look, if we're, if we're looking for something that's going to be either replacing or an adjunctive therapy to, to Narcan or Naloxone, it has to work instantly. And so the last thing that we were, uh, I just published was on using salbutamol and uh, epinephrine in mm-hmm. order to be adjunctive to the, the Narcan. So that way right. you, know, you, you gave a little bit to keep them, you know, enough that you kept the brain circuits going, but you can also super physiologically dilate the airways so that you stay somewhat oxygenated until the, the opioid can I, run its course. But it's, it's a fascinating thing in the, the, uh, the, the neurotoxicology type of world, um, that the, mm-hmm. the response time is something that really has to be considered and, Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I, 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 it's it's always fun to hear because we thought about it after the fact, but if you're thinking about it prior <laughs> to the fact, it's, it's well, it saves I, I, a lot of time. It seems prior to the fact because I'm t- I'm talking about this twelve years after doing this research. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. For twelve years, but at the time we started out twelve years ago, I'm not sure we were really that aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, Pam, I just got the uh, the little ticker that says uh, we're hitting up on time. So I did want to uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, enlighten us with all of the fascinating projects. It's absolutely incredible, and uh, the project that you have have built. And and I was reading some of the papers, of course, um, preparing, and it was I enjoyed the the publications that you put out. They they're relevant and easy to read. So, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. So, um, is there anything, uh, as far as like website or anything that you wanted to plug for, uh, the, the line lab? Oh, yes. We absolutely have a gorgeous, uh, website, the lion, just Google line lab. Um, it's EC Davis and you'll be able to find it. And that, there you can find a description of not only all our primary uh, scientific publications, but I'm also very engaged in working with my trainees on writing articles for the lay audience, scientific articles for lay audience in toxicology and environmental health. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff there as well, including an article on the fentanyl crisis that we wrote. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's, um, it's kind of fun to see the people that are behind the scenes who are actually generating the data that we're reporting yeah perfect all right well thanks pam i'll uh so much for doing the recording and um for those that are listening www.theneuronetwork.org um apple spotify google any of the major podcast players so 